0: This is a Media Lab podcast.
1: Hey, uh, Kyle. Yeah? Why is there a caravan Mm. in the spaceship and a bunch of women? walking behind it
0: well I, I mean they're not technically walking they are connected via tube so they can actually breathe
1: <laughs> i thought you were gonna say technically they're not women yeah yeah but
0: your question is well founded so I, I i don't know if you recall last week tave i did steal some diamonds no. and so there's been a person on our tail and i thought maybe having a bit of a community having some sort of like defense might not be a bad thing hey quiet down there i'll add some folium later um
1: Foley. They're hookers, uh, aren't they?
0: (laughs) Well, I was just about to say, like, we might be technically breaking a few intergalactic laws as far as sex for money.
1: I think if one of them has three boobs, we're gonna be fine.
0: On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again, this is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm Dave And I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse, and then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space, so now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the film McCabe and Mrs. Miller.
1: It's true that all the men you knew were dealers who said
2: they were through with dealing every time you gave them shelter. I know that kind of man. It's hard to hold the
1: hand of anyone who's reaching for the sky just to surrender. Who is reaching for the sky just to surrender. Well, we probably should give a big
0: thank you to our patrons, Green Girl, YYC, and It's a Conspiracy mm-hmm. Podcast. Dave, I'm actually very curious to you know learn what you know about this movie. Nothing. But before we do, I thought, because you are well known in your hatred of anything to do with the West, anything small town, if there is even a cow referenced in the literature you're immediately like zero stars. So-
1: Sorry, uh, what, a cow? What is that? A
0: cow. Oh, it's a right. co, a co. <laughs> so I thought that what we should do is bring on someone who was also here in Alberta, knows a lot about- cows. filmography, cameras, oh, lenses, and also cows. Uh, and we should call him up. So let's talk with Jordan Drake. Ooh. And uh, let me just uh, dial him up here. Jordan, thank you so much for answering the phone. Good to be here, guys. People are going to know you, of course, from the YouTube channel DP Review. Uh, I think that you are one of the best people to talk about, like, the look and feel of a movie being uh, worked on film sets yourself. Uh, Do you have a couple hours to watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller and then talk about it? I mean,
2: yeah. What's anybody doing right now? Let's do it.
0: (laughs) I think this is where we need to start off with here, then. Very broadly, and this is such a broad question, but what is your history... With Western movies, meaning, like, the actual Western cowboys.
2: I find, like, a lot of the older John Ford stuff really interesting, like, that kind of started. Mm. It and I can really, like, I like to watch those On an intellectual level, really. But I never grew up loving Westerns, which is kind of funny because I'm a farm kid. Uh, It just wasn't something that I was really that into. So I'm really into revisionist Westerns. Like one of my favorite TV series of all time is Deadwood, which is Mm -hmm. extremely influenced by the movie we're going to talk about today. Uh, As well, probably... It's close. One of my favorite movies from last year, um, First Cow, was also right. uh, very much that same kind of idea where the classic Western, there's not a lot of moral ambiguity to it. It's always, you know, it's classically Good guy, bad guy, where those are movies I love because it's just a fascinating period to think about how people survived. Like, I'm really interested in that. Like, how do you build a society out of nothing? So that's what I found really compelling about a lot of those, which is the same reason I like a lot of like historical epics and things. It wasn't the tropes of the Western that I find really, uh, that I really get into. It's more when they deviate from those that I find it really interesting.
0: Yeah. Dave, I think you had a John Wayne poster hanging up in your bedroom, correct?
1: Yeah, it's got him in yellow face. It's a good one. Right. Yeah. right. The only good John Wayne movie. I think that I like Westerns, but I think in an opposite and contrarian way, I don't really like to think about Westerns too much. And I think I like to watch them for... Their tone, and especially the spaghetti westerns, their uh, borrowing of of the sort of classic samurai films, etc. So just getting, even if it's an antihero, this uh, climactic action sequence, and just sort of that loneliness, it's fun. And you know, again, contrary to your assumption of me, Kyle, uh, the thing <laughs> I hate about west movies and small towns is that uh, they're just boring. Yeah. <laughs> i actually read leave it at that.
0: We'll, we'll, see, we'll see what we mean by boring, I guess. I think that's going to be a sliding scale depending on the person. What's actually really interesting, I hadn't actually put this together, and I think this. I need to think about this a little bit more to even come up with a, a greater point, but it's actually really interesting then how Italy specifically influenced the involvement of the Western genre and the horror genre for North America, because for in both cases, the slasher film and all that kind of stuff kind of emanates from italy first and brings its stuff over here and then with like clint eastwood and those movies sergio leone and then altman now but then you'll see that kind of return to like yeah the anti-western is what they used to call them all the way up to like Unforgiven and and later
2: on stuff like that so yeah FBI, interesting. fbi wasn't he's allowed cool. overseas Eastwood's really fascinating because he's been involved on two sides of that, right? Right. Um, From the Sergio Leone stuff to then doing his own spin on the anti-Western revisionist Mm -hmm. Western.
0: So I guess just to answer my own question here then, like, I guess I'm a little bit aligned with Jordan in that I, like, I, I, it wasn't like I rejected Westerns as I was growing up, but they were not really my go-to, I guess it was my family's go-to viewing stuff. Weirdly enough, like, even though I, I probably had seen a couple before this my parents were huge lovers of Mel Brooks so like By 11 or 12, they had shown me Blazing Saddles. So I guess I kind of intuitively knew the tropes and all this other stuff that that was parodying. And and so I always think about that when I go into any Western a little bit is like, how is this going to measure up to the Blazing Saddles like parody of this of this version of the story?
2: Well, and that's almost the start of it, because what year is Blazing Saddles, right? 74, (laughs) I think. Yeah, Yeah. So this is I mean, it would really be this and Blazing Saddles are the two that kind of tear the old Western cliches apart a little bit.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a good big thing to, uh, as far as contact setting for 1971, like even looking at 10 years before this in 61, like Westerns are still a pretty big deal in Hollywood ish. And this is like the last like (laughs) dregs of Westerns until John Wayne passes away in 78 or 79. And then really no, not much of Westerns (laughs) are made until like late eighties, early nineties again.
2: Yeah did this movie kill the western it's possible well, that's what
0: I, that, that was kind of my little bit of a, a talking point i want to bring up is like i want this and blazing saddles are kind of the interesting duo one being like the anti-western one being the parody i i actually remember i took a cinema class in university or a couple but one of them talked about how there is a bit of um a life cycle for certain genres the kind of ebb and flow which is like you have your classic ones then people are trying to do things that are counter to that, and there's a third step which I always forget. But the last one was parody, and when someone makes like the parody version of your thing, then it's sometimes hard to break past that, and then only occasionally you get that same genre. Yeah. So you see that with horror, f- or like with the slasher films, when Scream came out, you see that even I would argue the uh, James Bond franchise when Austin Powers came out. It took mm-hmm. them a while to be like, well, what are we? What are we then, <laughs> yeah. if not just this parody that Austin Powers is shown to us? And I'm assuming that in within the next ten years we'll see that with the superhero genre.
2: But I God, I, I hope know. so. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> That there. parody can't get here soon enough that's going to end right. this disaster. Yeah.
0: It will only end after there's a movie made about my origin story. Going further with that, Robert Altman. Robert Altman is a big, big name in American cinema and in world cinema. But I would definitely say like the 70s were... Yeah, Uh, his decade. So, Jordan, I want to know your relationship with Robert Altman.
2: I remember very distinctly when I was a teenager, my parents were like, we're going to watch MASH because that's a defining. Mm. I know you're getting into movies and MASH sucks like, (laughs) uh, you know, I understand some of its importance, but yeah, Mm. it doesn't hold up at all, which is the case with a lot of straight comedies from that era. Uh, so I kind of steered clear of Altman for quite a while until I really started to get into cinematography. And then this movie is brought up constantly uh something that breaks a lot of rules. You know, is very influential and, you know, Vilmos, uh, Zygmunt, the DP on it. I still, I respect him enormously and don't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh,
0: what other stuff would he have done that people might've heard of? Uh,
2: Deer Hunter is a really big one. Ended his career very inauspiciously with Jersey Girl. I mean, that's, that's a dark. Yeah.
1: Okay. Wow. A beautiful thread. Yeah. That's great. Yeah.
2: But a guy who's really known for like very naturalistic lighting, you know, um, it's not always beautiful, but it always feels real. That's what he's very well known for. So with that, I was like, well, if I'm going to go back and watch an Altman, it's got to be a really. Interesting visual one, uh, and yeah, I really fell for the movie um, quite a bit, and we can talk about a few reasons. I think it's a very flawed movie. It's it's a bit of a comfort film for me. I think this is the fourth time I've seen it. Just the other right. day, and it kind of um, flew right by when I was watching it again. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there's always something to look at, or like a technical detail that you can obsess over. I can see how if you're less involved and interested in that side of things because this is a revolutionary movie it there's some parts of it that are a bit of a you know tough slog especially the early scenes and then since then i've seen a few more altmans i lo- like nashville's great and then just the other day in preparation for this podcast i watched the player which mm. is kind of that's the height of everything i think he was building towards in his career just in terms of like a technical level and what i think he was trying to do with mccabe and mrs miller and he's actually accomplishing it there you know a lot of the overlapping dialogue and the audio is there but there's no issues with it the zooms are still there but they're nowhere near as distracting and obtrusive as they are in mccabe so there you can really see what he was striving towards
0: dave what is your history with robert Altman?
1: i never met him uh, okay. So yeah, we we're we really good. in
0: the same building as you for years. <laughs> apparently, he was a real asshole, so he might have dodged a <laughs> bullet there. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah we've I, I've looked at some of uh, the wiki of his personality. Doesn't seem like a very nice person. But that's that's Hollywood. It's Warren. It's directors well.
2: in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: Warren, Warren Beatty. Apparently, it's not a really nice guy to know either. Uh, I know the name in the so-called diaspora i haven't chased his movies um i haven't watched Na- mash in uh, who knows so i can't recall much of that film i can't i've never watched nashville so um i don't actually know why i know his name i mean that's how you know you made it because uh people like me just oh yeah i've heard of robert altman i didn't even watch jersey girl i mean what a miss wow Fuck, oh, what
2: a miss for you Ugh. i i envy you that <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, when I was really getting into film, like, Robert Altman was this name that kept popping up again and again. And so at a certain point, I was like, okay, I need to watch some of his stuff. As with all of us, I picked MASH first as kind of my first entry point to see. uh, Because I am, you know, 90 years old and really liked the TV show growing up when I was watching it in reruns. So I was going to be like, oh, it has to be, like, the same thing. And it really isn't. But, like, I watched some other stuff. Like, I watched Nashville. I watched um, The Long Goodbye. Mm. And then I uh, was, you know, at, the t- at that time, he was still making movies and releasing them. So I watched a few of his last stuff in theaters, uh, Gosford Park, oh, being right. the one that oh, I yeah, watched yeah. in theaters. That's a good movie. yeah. And I am the only person in the entire world who likes a Prairie Home Companion. So I <laughs> I will die what on that hill, this? I guess, if I have
2: to.
1: <laughs> Never heard of it.
2: That was the other one. It was like, do I watch Player or Prairie Home Companion when I was right. looking at a new one? Uh, and I know that that was one of Ebert's favorite movies right before he died. That's one of... Okay, Uh, well,
0: then it's me and Eberts are the only two people who like that movie. (laughs) it that's good company, Kyle. (laughs) It was pretty trashed uh, at the time by by critics and no one side. But it's a really interesting look at, like, literally, like, death and legacy. That's what that entire movie is about. So, being the last film he made, it's like, oh, that makes sense.
2: Well, it's also funny because he ended the genre like the Western in some ways. And then yeah. he's also, that's like the end of classic country music. Like he, a few times yeah. is like right at the death of something that was previously really culturally important.
0: McCabe is one of the ones I have not seen again, referencing so many books that I've read. Uh, and it gets brought up by even current directors as being stuff that they love. So it's like, I'm, I'm really looking forward to actually jumping into this and watching it for the first time, uh, just to see how I happen to like it which is probably a good segue to go and do just that so Dave and I are going to do we're going to go and thank some sponsors and then when we return we'll be talking a little bit more about McCabe and Mrs. Miller all right Dave I've gotten all of our extra friends to quiet down here a little bit as we you know do our ad reads and our thank yous to all the people that make this show continue to go
1: I don't know why they keep complaining you got them a couple nice tents and chamber pots but yeah
0: I mean like so there's no running water. <laughs> What's the big whoop? It's right, the
1: space frontier.
0: I mean, I guess the first thing we should be saying is that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. David, Dave.
1: Uh, yep. Da. I'm still here. This,
0: you know, this episode is also brought to you and everyone else, and me included, by Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates. I know what you're thinking, why are we talking about another podcast and our podcast? And I often have the same question, but in this case, it's a great podcast for people to learn about so many different things. Shift showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem, everything from health to clean energy. You can join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in the province. In their most recent episode, which is called Creativity, Research and Being an Entrepreneur, from the show notes themselves, it says on this episode, we start to. And not we, but me and Dave, but them. On this episode, we start by talking about Jana Rieger's company, True Angle Medical Technologies, Jana's journey from researcher to entrepreneur, and the help that she and her partners received as they grew. We bring in Alberta Innovate's technology development advisor, Mike Rio, who's been working with Jana and True Angle to discuss the role he played. That's mouthful. Find... Find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. Once again, Dave, because I know you're dumb, that's shift.albertainnovates.ca.
1: If I hold the shift while I hit dot...
0: (laughs) Do you know that when I... This is so embarrassing. Like, I we got our first family computer in grade seven. It was not until grade 12 that I finally understood when you had to use like other keys, like shift, control, option, that sort of thing. Uh, modifier keys, that's what they're actually called. But when you had to do that, you didn't actually have to go like, bam, all at the same time, which I thought you had to do. Cause it was like, you know, control, delete. I thought you had to like, boom, all at the one time and hit them all one, at once. Two,
1: oh, I missed it. I missed but, it. But
0: you know, you can just like push one at a time as long as you're hitting them all at the same time. It's amazing and that I you remember, ended up
1: teaching about computers. Yeah, I know. Yeah.
0: I remember vividly. Can we talk about that yet? I don't know if I'm out of my n- non-disclosure agreement, Dave. Um, I I vividly remember in grade twelve, literally being at a computer and doing like bam to like probably save a document or something. And literally, the person was like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> it's just like you don't have to do it that way. I'm like, "Oh, I'm oh sorry," uh, and then I slunk away. I was not invited to the party again.
1: You were at a. Keyboarding party. That explains a lot. Actually, I was was in the
0: the library (laughs) writing an essay.
1: Hey guys, come on over. We're having a keyboarding party.
0: It's like no one ever invited me to the to the parties. (laughs) I was a loser, Dave. Is what I'm trying to say. All right,
1: all right. Oh my god. Oh my god. I'm not your therapist. Ah, maybe (laughs) I should charge an hourly rate.
0: What do you have for me, Dave?
1: All right. So I get to talk to all of us. I think again about the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. When you make a gift to the Calgary Foundation, it's a gift that keeps on giving. The Foundation's knowledgeable staff will provide advice on the community's most pressing needs, keeping your interests at heart and helping you give back in a way that is meaningful for you. Your contributions are invested in an endowment fund that provides a permanent source of funding, allowing you to make an impact now and forever. If you're prof- I know, right? That's a, it's a long time. If you're a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client or a donor wanting to give back to the community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org to learn more or check out Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. These people are getting
0: closer to us. You know, I think we might need a bigger tent. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, That was a brisk two hours that we got to sit on the couch here together. felt a little Um, longer than that. (laughs) I mean, Jordan, you are mentioning how this is like your fourth time watching this movie. What are the things that you noticed here on this rewatch?
2: Well, this time I really did try to look at it on a more technical level because there's some interesting Mm -hmm. stuff going on. And one thing I never knew the previous times I'd seen it that makes perfect sense watching this again uh, is that it was shot chronologically. Um, and they're doing a lot of really innovative things technically with this, like the overlapping dialogue, um, the way that they flash the negative to make the exteriors as grainy as the interiors, uh, which is a really unique look too, but I don't think they'd figured it out. So what's cool with this movie, the early scenes in the bar, like the audio is, this is the biggest gripe I hear from people. It's like the audio is so muddy in those situations. It feels very cheap. It's noisy as hell. I don't think they'd figured it out yet. And, you know, as the way it worked in the old Hollywood system is, you know, you'd wait for six days and you'd get your dailies back uh, from the lab to see what you'd done. Uh, And I think they just tuned their technique based on that in in terms of the way it looks and the way that it sounds. And I don't know if you guys both felt this way, but the film gets stronger and stronger as it moves forward, not just in terms of like the technical levels, like the sound does get better as the film rolls on Um, the way that the cinematography works to really not just emphasize like that grain pattern everywhere, but the light really starts to bloom in a really interesting way, especially when they're by windows and stuff. It's a really nice look. It just kind of turns into Uh, Like a very technically effective, you know, the reason everyone still talks about it today, I don't think is because of the first 40 minutes of this movie. Mm. But I think it's very important to have that. uh, I kind of love the idea where they just dip you into like, this is not your classic John Ford Western where you've got a town that's been around for 40 years already. It's established and everything. You know, these are people where. They from the time the movie starts to the time it ends, it's they've de- built a town in that period uh, and it's, you know, very muddy and very rough and gross. And, you know, the men are all the worst because anytime you have I think the ratio is anytime there's more than two thirds men in an area, everything just goes to hell completely and you really feel that there, like oh this must be the worst place on earth and then yeah as it goes further and further like there's some shots especially you know we'll talk about the snowstorm later but Mm -hmm. uh that are just iconic and beautiful
0: it can't be overstated how if you're not really knowledgeable about traditional westerns how much of a departure this movie actually is Mm -hmm. meaning that some of those tropes of being like Hey, there's bad people in town, and the lone gunman is coming in, and he's all good, and there's going to be a, a shootout, usually at noon, while people the townspeople cower behind windows. That's kind of the template that this movie is coming into, and it basically says nope, nope. to all of that, and kind of does the exact opposite at every every point. Um, so I think that that does need to be set up here at the very beginning. But uh, Dave, I want to know what your opinion of Ms., of McCabe and Mrs. Miller is.
1: I like how the apologist of the two of us has already started apologizing for this film. It's great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, to Jordan's point, I think it wasn't even the muddy audio at the beginning. I didn't like the uh, script because they kept repeating the same thing over and over again. And I was like, this is not even how normal people speak. You know, they don't keep repeating the same line. But uh, I I agree with you as well, Jordan, in that it uh, blooms such a great, uh, word to use there because I was really not enjoying it to start off and I was, you know, kind of being held in by Warren Beatty's uh, mystique because they suggest that he might be a gunslinger, but he just looks like such a piece of shit. Uh, but towards the end as, as it starts building up steam, Particularly, you know, once the uh, true killers have at least opined that this guy is just a coward, and I was like, this is this getting pretty interesting. Like, I don't know if I'm enjoying it, but yeah, at a brain level, I was like, this is fascinating to walk through because now we have a lot more complexity than normally. As Kyle brought up, you see, essentially, old westerns were superhero movies, right? Before there were capes. So
0: I wish more cowboys wore capes.
1: Yeah, I've been withholding judgment actually in my head because I don't know how I feel about this film, and the more I learn. Uh, like you brought up Jordan about the technical aspects and who Ro- I, I, we have now looked at who Robert Altman is and who Warren Beatty is um i think my overall opinion of this movie will change but as we turned off the vcr here um i uh, <laughs> they only yeah, have vcrs on the ship there's, there's <laughs> laser
0: disc actually that we were watching this on, on the the Betamax. come on
2: machine
1: <laughs> i feel i feel uh yeah i feel actually i feel confused by this movie and um yeah maybe that's the point you
2: just touched on the thing that i really wanted to mention which is that this is a reverse hero's journey in the start they're like that's the man who killed him and he's you know the way everybody looks at him and stuff like that uh and then slowly as the movie goes on one of my favorite scenes is when he goes after he's talked to the lawyer and goes to mrs miller and tries to like repeat what he said and you're just like this guy has no idea uh and as those layers of mystique get stripped away he becomes more sympathetic because you're like this is just a dumb guy out of his depth um which i think is a really interesting i mean mrs miller that's why i think it's the book was called mccabe the movies mccabe and mrs miller because she becomes much more sympathetic as he becomes more pathetic as the movie goes on which i think is just such a an interesting dynamic uh but i kind of love that yeah it's it's the complete reversal of most of these kind of movies
0: and honestly that's kind of the part of the movie that i was the most drawn to is when that kind of switch happens because again i'm so used to westerns being like when they're like hushed whispers about oh this guy he's like this great gunslinger that you kind of just immediately oh okay yeah he's a great gunslinger and he's gonna probably have a shootout here but when you kind of finally find out oh no like he's a huge coward and actually doesn't know how to shoot a gun hardly <laughs> like he is completely out of his depth and that's so fascinating i think something that is sometimes missed with Warren Beatty being like he of course started off kind of as like this matinee idol and then kind of went into like this new Hollywood direction of really interesting films. He does have a screen presence. Uh, he's really known for his like dramatic work, but I actually think he's a pretty good comedic actor when he needs to be. Uh, there's some line readings and some like looks that he gives to like different people. Like, oh man, that's great. <laughs> the, the, the your choice on how to do that is so good. Warren Beatty could fill an entire episode of this podcast because the guy's fascinating only because he basically never wanted to be a famous actor. And that's basically what he became for like 30 years
2: Wow! Well, and barely yeah. works
0: <laughs> and barely worked. Yeah. Well, like even in like the eight, like the seventies and eighties, he made four movies. Well, so, he produced like, so many <laughs> yeah. and apparently
1: yeah. he slept with every woman oh, in yeah. Hollywood. So, well, that's why was when he busy. finally got married
0: to, to, <laughs> and um, Ben Benning Bening, that it was like such a huge thing. <laughs> At the time, I I actually agree with Dave in one aspect, which is I also and I don't want to break the fiction of our podcast because, of course, we just finished watching this movie. But let's say that I had watched this movie three days ago, if that had been the case, I also love to be like, what do I actually feel about this movie? I knew I was positive, mostly positive towards it. It's kind of like worked itself into my mind a little bit as I've been thinking about it and ruminating on it a little bit more. What I love about Robert Altman is his kind of desire to do that, yes, the overlapping dialogue, but it also always feels like a lived-in spot that I'm watching. Like, it doesn't feel like this is a film set where people are like, okay, you walk across the street now as we like bring the camera this way. It's like, no, this feels like I'm actually in a Western town. Um, And it's grimy and it's dirty and it's gross and that sort of thing. But sorry, Jordan, what did you say?
2: I was just going to say that's another cool thing about the chronological is they are actually building a city like a town while production is going on. That's why they had to shoot it that way is all the extras Mm -hmm. are people who were, yeah, like putting up lumber structures and things like that and digging around Mm -hmm. in the muck. So, uh, yeah, I, I do think that's part of the reason that that really unconventional filmmaking makes sense and it totally works uh in you know again looking at like the player and mash and things like that
0: yeah um of course as i have already mentioned too because i am 90 years old i have been watching old clips of the dick cabot show here this week uh which is great for this type of thing because robert altman and a lot of people came onto a show to discuss this there's this question that uh, dick cabot asked and i love robert altman's answer dick Cavett goes like do you like it when people ask you like what M.A.S.H. is about or what McCabe is about? And he says, like, well, like I answer them, but it's a lie. And I loved that that's how he answered that question. He's like, yeah, I have my idea, but it doesn't really matter what my intention is. It really depends on what the person who's watching it is. And that's what the, I guess the biggest thing I was uh, kind of struggling with, because I find that the characters are so interesting just to watch. Um, and I find that I think ultimately this is like people's expectations and the stories we build up about other people very much influence us. Like there is, of course, the Warren Beatty character, but there's also like the person he's supposed to kill. And I love that the recurring thing there is like, so who was that guy again? Like, what did he do? Does anyone know who that guy was? And no one does, but it's like they have built this thing up about like, oh, he's so important and he'd cook him out. And, and then even watching Mrs. Miller beam, this character who would never have been focused on a Western before this, which is like a madam who is running the brothel of being like, Oh, she's like the really smart one. And she understands how like money works and she understands how to make a business. Uh, And then ultimately this is basically a movie that uh, doesn't like capitalism because the big corporation comes in and tries to kill the small upstart uh, company that's in there. So if you want to read it that way, you can also read it that way. So I think there's a lot of things that this movie is kind of talking about and, and bringing up, which is, Fascinating to me. Do you think I should start my own brothel? Uh, Before we uh, broaden our discussion out, let's talk about some backstory for McCabe and Mrs. Miller. This was, of all things, a summer release. So this was released on June 24th, 1971. As far as ratings go on IMDb, it is currently rated 7.7. It is a ninety-three on Metacritic, and then over on Rotten Tomatoes from fifty-six critics, it's at eighty-four percent, and from five thousand plus users, it's at eighty-seven uh, percent. It is available on DVD as of two thousand sixteen. You can buy the Criterion four K Blu-ray if you want your physical media. Uh, you can buy or rent it on iTunes, buy or rent it on YouTube. Uh, in Canada, there's not a place to stream it currently, but uh, is it is a bunch on of other it options. is on
2: Criterion Channel uh, right now. Is it really? Yeah.
0: Oh, I should have looked that Kyle, up. Like, oh, come right. on, man. <laughs> I have a little app that tells me if it's on Criterion. It didn't but show it, up for me but for it, some reason.
2: It flickers on and off because when I, you first mentioned oh. that we were going to do this, it was on there and then, uh, you know, oh, they're a little wrestling while later. for the rights oh. mm-hmm. and then uh, back. No, it's just how the Criterion channel works. They always have shows coming on and off. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: I've seen sometimes it like goes off for a month, comes back on for a month, goes off for a month, comes back on for some weird reason. Worst
1: UI ever.
0: Yeah, so we we always bring that up when we do watch things on the Criterion channel. It has the worst UI of any of the streaming services, but I couldn't find out definitively what the budget for this movie was, but I do know that it would eventually make $8.2 million, which would be as if a movie made $55 million today. Uh, So not like a terrible, I wouldn't say, return on probably what the budget for this movie was. Its plot description is, a gambler and a prostitute become business partners in a remote Old West mining town, and their enterprise thrives until a large corporation arrives on the scene. Of course, stars Warren Beatty as John McCabe, Julie Christie as Constance Miller, and Hugh Millier as Butler. Uh, Anything we want to say about those actors?
2: I I was just going to say, I think it's kind of interesting that at this point... Beatty and Julie Christie had both had one hit, uh, which I, when yeah. I was scrolling back through their filmography, it's like, haven't seen, haven't seen, but yeah, you have Bonnie and Clyde for Beatty and you have, um, Dr. Shivago for Christie. And I mm-hmm. think both of those are like really big movies. And this kind of established their like art film credentials a little bit is, I mean, Bonnie and Clyde was obviously, you know, kind of Very one of huge. the most influential movies ever. And, but it is, you know, uh, A fair like it's another reimagining of a classic genre, right? Mm -hmm. Uh where this one, yeah, it does feel a lot like their Altman's already established as an interesting director. This is their uh going after that kind of credential for being artists is kind of how I felt looking at their filmographies.
0: Well, what's also interesting too, like from this point forward, whether it was an Altman influence or just because he was getting, you know famous more and more famous warren Beatty is famous for when he is just asked to be an actor for wanting to take the movie over and direct it himself (laughs) that is the the recurring thing where he basically uncredited is like i'm going to direct this movie now and like pushes the director out of the way um and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't
2: i believe we call that the costner now is the uh, official term for that kind of behavior yeah uh
0: but dave was there something you want to say about the actors
1: the one thing couple things actually for warren Beatty is uh his uh, mom's from Nova Scotia, mm. and her—I think her brother or brother-in-law was the uh, one of the founding members of the Communist Party of Canada. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Makes that, sense. Okay, which, great. That which lines great. up perfectly with <laughs> yeah. the theme of this film, actually.
1: Um, yeah, for those—I mean, anyone listening to this probably knows this—but his sister Shirley McLean, which is yep. kinda of crazy.
0: Actually, what's, uh, can I just bring that up because this just happened on Twitter not even like two days ago i don't think that is something that somebody on twitter realizes like once every four to five months and then twitter is all of us like did you know that his sister is shirley mclean it's like i i do because <laughs> i was here six months ago So apparently
1: <laughs> why I got into acting is kind of because she yeah. was blown up he got a football scholarship so he was going to be a jock apparently i don't know this is according to wikipedia he apparently is kind of credited for making uh political concerts happen so he. What do you mean he put together uh, McGovern's, so, so he put on three rock, like you know, big mm. name celebrity concerts for a political cause, and he. So, for example, the first one w- had Streisand, Carol King, James Taylor, and Quincy Jones. Right. The second one was one we talked about, live at the MSG with Simon Garfunkel, Nichols and May. Right. That's Warren Beatty put that together for that. Put that together, group.
0: okay. Well, that makes sense too because I also know like. We, we talked about A New Leaf with Elaine May, and she w- hadn't made a movie in 10 years, and so he was the one who's like, no, she has to make another movie in Ishtar. And once again, he tried to take over that movie <laughs> halfway through, and she told him to go fuck himself. But um,
2: <laughs> She's the best. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then
1: he's got this one, so, you know, we talk about EGOTS and all this stuff. He's got a, uh, the distinction of being nominated for acting, directing, writing, and producing the same film, film twice. Which is weird. Red Bugsy and Reds. Reds and something called Heaven Can Wait.
2: Oh, Heaven oh, Can yeah, Wait. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So, uh, so he's yeah, he's a control freak, which I think oh, yeah. is kind of coming out. Yeah, 100%. To get nominations every category. Julie Christie's, uh, I guess, the swinging '60s lady. So she's uh, fascinating. I really liked her in this movie. She's, she's got great. a great, strong presence. Kind of like when Candice Bergen showed up. You know, she's got a great intelligence, even though she's playing this sort of cockney horror, for lack of a better word. And she's, uh, she's yeah, she's great. Um, but as far as her credentials, she's basically a great actress from the UK. Uh, she's yeah. got a lot She'd of She'd already won an
0: Oscar at this point, and I can't remember for which was. For movie a film called was. Darling. Yeah. It was not for Dr. Zhivago, which people think, but it was was for some different She was nominated
1: in Zhivago. And Darling was directed by John Schlesinger. It's such a... Like, everybody's all mixed together, Kyle. As we discovered in
0: 71, it's like everyone has worked with everyone else. So Speaking of of working with
1: everyone else, uh, Warren Beatty slept with her, too.
2: Oh
0: good to know Wow, well,
2: uh, it's g- it's go. kind of funny i like always thought like oh she'll never be better than this movie uh and then away with her or away from her oh. came out which is still probably one of my top three acting performances in any category ever uh mm. so uh, she's always got a special place in my heart and that's good canadian content too, <laughs> yes <that> we- <laughs> everybody go watch all the sarah polly right now that's yeah. that should be a mandate
1: um uh, wikipedia sent me to actually uh Rene albert genoa
2: oh yeah but
1: uh i just thought it was funny because he's odo and i should have put it together as soon as i saw his face but um, he's also the <laughs>
0: uh if i i might be totally saying something wrong i'm pretty sure he's the uh the 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 singing chef in the little mermaid is he not
1: oh like the voice of
0: yeah the voice oh. of
1: I don't know. I, I, I know he's done a lot of voice acting work, but I didn't yeah. look through the credits there because it was too long. But he's kind of a big deal. He's got a Tony, started off on stage. Mm-hmm. So good for him. If you look at the, just going back to Warren Beatty, he actually has, you know, people have a filmography. He's got a linkable list of women he slept with. Oh with. my God. <laughs> and you, you should see the thing because it's, I think it's like th- it says four like, wait, wait, columns wait, wait. by How like- How
0: does this list get compiled? Is this what he said or is this actually confirmed? I think these
1: are confirmed. They're all clickable links. It's basically every A-list female celebrity from the 50s through the 70s. And they have quotes from all these women. And it's right. it's the first time we've run into this that they're actually like- <laughs> He he had a rep. Um, this is like I check it out if it across. wasn't
2: gross.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, it's kind of like it's like kind of like on the Wikipedia article of Clint Eastwood where it says he has seven or eight children. Perhaps <laughs> yeah,
1: nobody actually knows because he apparently was uh, letting yeah. it swing too. Seven um, years. <laughs> yeah <laughs> the only other thing uh, i'm because i'm sure you're going to go into robert altman in, in more depth yeah. but the only fascinating thing is it says the screenplay was written by someone named brian mckay who is internet invisible and i, see- I know
0: okay i was going to bring this up because he does not exist no. if you will try and look up anything about him it's like who is this person because he i, I started don't know. thinking
1: like so it's clearly an alias do you think it's i i, I wonder now is it warren Beatty or is it robert altman because
0: oh i could be there's yeah. something We're,
1: weird there because nobody nobody baby did it we'd know
2: that's my theory that's true so that's that's the thing. About like it. baby yeah.
0: would we'd want to <laughs> say it. so uh, yeah there's some collaborator who didn't want to be i guess actually credited for some reason it, or, it feels like one of those things like when we talked about um billy jack where it's the same for his producer director star right but he had to change his name because of legal things yeah couldn't
1: i suspect the same same
0: same person in all those roles at that
1: time there's other credits for brian mckay on some of the shows that robert altman also worked on and i I have a feeling it's the same person but it's great it's creepy because it's the first time you can google somebody they actually have a filmography and no photograph no bio no nothing it's incredible
2: But uh, this was almost exclusively improvised. Like they just used the book as a structural template. So I could totally Mm -hmm. see that being somebody's got to take the screenwriting credit on this. So let's just slap a name on for the uh, guilds. I could totally see that being a thing.
0: Yeah. Well, to that point then, yes, this was written by Robert Altman and a person named Brian McKay based on the novel McCabe by Edmund Naughton and directed by Robert Altman. Uh, So starting off with Edmund... Edmund Naughton, Uh, he is quite similar in many ways to, to Ernest Tiedemann if you remember Dave, the writer of Shaft and The French Connection, in that he started his writing career as a crime reporter. Specifically, he reported on the police, uh, and he got so good, or perhaps not good, from your perspective, that he would do his writing in about 90 minutes per day, and then spent the rest of his time, and this is in his own words, playing cards and drinking beer with policemen. He would eventually go on this manhunt with the police one time, for this suspected criminal and it was that experience that inspired him to write the novel McCabe and uh, as we said no Mrs. Miller in that title it's just called McCabe except he took the characters from that manhunt and put them over into the Wild West hmm. setting. McCabe the book was published in 1959 So, the rights to make the movie version were purchased in 1968, with uh, Ben Maddow originally hired to write the screenplay. He was a pretty well-known screenwriter at the time, uh, probably best known for writing the John Huston movie The Asphalt Jungle, but he had made these substantial changes to the plot. The producer, who buys the movie rights, who who had bought the movie rights, this guy by the name of David Foster, was invited by Robert Altman to a screening of his then-new movie M.A.S.H., And Foster loves it and thinks that Altman would be this great match for this Western that he had just purchased. However, what they decided to do, they wanted to wait until MASH was released. Uh, Foster was pretty confident it was going to become a hit, and this was a good choice because it did become a huge hit and essentially gave a blank check to Robert Altman for like the next decade to do what he wanted to do. Altman originally wanted to actually cast Elliot Gould in the lead role. That would have been great. Yeah, <laughs> it, would been. it would have been. a very different movie, I think. Uh, Gould turned it down because he felt that the character wasn't developed enough. So Foster then calls up Warren Beatty, uh, of course, was famous at this point, And he says, We want you to be in this new movie from this new kind of new director, Robert Altman. And so Beatty's a little bit hesitant on this. So he says, tell you what, I'm going to fly you to New York and you're going to watch his movie called MASH. So that's what he does. He flies to New York (laughs) to to watch this. He finishes that movie and Beatty Beatty jumps on a plane to Los Angeles to sign his name saying that he's going to be part of this movie. Uh, and then julie christie soon followed after that the this new script because they had this script already but altman didn't like the fact that he had changed so much from the original novel so they essentially just threw that script away and developed this new loose shooting script uh, because yeah there's a lot of improvisation that's happening in this movie flies the whole crew to west vancouver to film uh, I think in the Squamish area as well. And they film it in almost sequential order. It's like 99% in sequential order. Very rare thing to do back then or even present day. Um, and initially, this is actually the funny part. Initially, there wasn't actually supposed to be as much snow as there appears at the end of this film. But and in the last nine days of filming, it began to snow heavy. <laughs> it's heavy, heavy snow. Beatty actually wanted to like, call the production off and just wait for it to melt a little bit. And Altman says, listen, we have like nine days to go. We only have the standoff left to film. We can't. We can't go like over budget over time just to film this one last scene. They they film it in like this huge, it's like giant snow banks that they had to like walk through. It was the editing that actually took the longest time. It actually took almost nine months to edit this film together. I am guessing that it's probably because of the improv nature of this, that they mm-hmm. had to try and mash like this words and phrases and cuts and stuff together to try and get it to be seamless as much as possible. From the outset, though, Altman's point was to have this be an anti-Western or at least the Western that didn't do all the tropes that people were expecting. And then, of course, we have the standard Altman sound mixing using overlapping dialogue with bits of conversation being able to be heard and not... Uh, what I found interesting, this is another uh, cool like, similarity that we discovered when we talked about Mike Nichols this year. But when Mike Nichols was doing The Graduate a few years before this, he had been listening to Simon and Garfunkel on repeat to the point where he's like, I have to have Simon and Garfunkel be the soundtrack to this movie because I can't think of anything else that would match it. Altman had picked up a copy of Leonard Cohen's debut album, Songs of Leonard Cohen, and like loved it. Uh, he actually had to buy additional vinyl copies because he kept wearing out his record because he was listening to it way too much. So eventually he does the same thing as Nichols. He couldn't envision this film without the Cohen interstitials that are inside this film.
1: That's a good word. Did you like? What's that? Did you Google that? Interstitials. That's that's a nice one. No,
0: I that was off the dome, baby, yeah, nice. off the dome.
1: Yeah, I like that. Uh,
0: he. <laughs> so Aldmer was pretty confident that he was not going to be able to get the rights for this one because this is a movie that's made by Warner Brothers, and their competition, Columbia, is who. Had the recording rights to Leonard Cohen, but he calls him. He calls actually Leonard Cohen up direct, and he's like, "Hey, like I'm a big fan. Can can I use your music?" And unbeknownst to him, Leonard Cohen um, had actually not seen MASH, which Altman was going to lean on if he thought he needed to. He was a huge fan of Brewster McCloud, which was the other movie Altman had made the year before. Star again, Bud Court. Bud Court, yeah. Weird. Uh, so he. Loved this movie, Bruce McCloud, that no one had gotten seen. And he gave it to him for, like, pennies. Like, he just says, like, I loved it so much, like, have it for, like, super cheap. I would never be that cheap. I prefer to bathe in money. The release of this movie is what gets contentious a little bit. Because it was put into theaters without a a lot of lead time for marketing. And as such, so the the monthly film magazines did not have a chance to preview it and then give reviews before the weeklies got to it. (laughs) This is a big thing at the time. <laughs> the monthlies were like where you got like the delving more into like film criticism and like longer essays. The weeklies were like the quick, fast like reviews. IGTV. Yeah. So when it debuted in New York, the two weekly film columnists hated this movie, like trashed it. Uh, both of them called it garbage, actually, is what they were the exact words. So therefore, like that tone, some kind of permeated this film for the first few weeks because that was like the word of mouth things like oh i've heard this isn't very good uh but until like the monthly film critics came out i was like actually this is actually pretty great and actually again having watched some interviews with robert altman apparently the first prince that went into theaters actually did have bad sound mixing (laughs) so he actually had to go and redo it and then they got put back into theaters with the proper sound mixing put into place and
2: we've listened to this with the proper sound mixing so can you imagine how a worse sound mix that first 20 minutes oh yeah tough. so
0: yeah but it sounded like like, no one could hear a thing people were, were saying actually in the movie um but it did pretty okay with the box office. Like it would go on to be fairly well-reviewed, honestly, in that year. As far as the uh, any recognition for awards, the only Oscar nomination it would receive would be for Julie Christie for Best Actress, but she would lose to Jane Fonda for Clute this year. I want to continue on with some of that that technical talk here. What do you think, as far as cinematography goes, Jordan, Like, what is going on in this movie that makes it look so distinctive?
2: Yeah, so what's really interesting is typically you'd use two types of film stock. You know, your exterior bright, uh, low-speed film stock, which isn't very grainy. And then when you were inside, you'd use your faster stocks that have a lot more grain in the image. Uh, That Mm -hmm. was the way. But they were like, we want this whole movie to feel old. Uh, So we're going to actually – they flash it, so pre-expose the film stock outside. It's super risky because you can – destroy the film stock before you even start shooting if you do this. Uh, But the end result is if you look at the structure of it, like exteriors, they have that same kind of grainy, you know, you would think this is one of the first color films uh, made Mm. as opposed to like in the seventies where they've kind of figured it out. Uh, So it's like a really interesting aesthetic choice. What uh, I really paid attention to this time. And I don't know if you guys noticed is um, halfway through the, uh, the, end of it the big gunfight uh it's super clean it's beautiful um and they've actually stopped flashing it so i rewound it to try and figure out when that happens and it's when he wakes up after he's spent the night with julie christie uh before the Mm -hmm. gunfight they stop that process and that's part of why that last period out there is just Stunningly beautiful. Plus, they lucked out completely with that snow. Like, but that's now, if yeah. if Warren Beatty had gotten his way, I don't think this movie would be remembered nearly the same way. It's just because your classic gunfight is the dusty, hot Western to go to a wet, cold ending. Uh, I think is just such a really interesting change on it. The other thing that's really interesting is I touched on it briefly, but. People didn't use zoom lenses very much. Like they're in the Sergio Leone movies. Your classic Hollywood, you, you wouldn't zoom during a shot. You'd dolly in. Uh, where this is filled with, like, I kind of lost track. I was trying to pay attention to how much that was going on. It's an interesting look. And I always thought that was the DP's input. But it turns out, because Altman was doing TV work, he was like, well, we use zoom lenses because it's way cheaper than moving the camera. Uh, I've kind of gotten used to it. Uh, And I don't, Mm. I don't love the zooms. There's a few that are really great, but a lot of the time I do find them really distracting, you know, instead of dollying in where your perspective stays the same, when you zoom, it looks artificial and you can use that in some cool ways. Wes Anderson does it to draw attention to stuff in interesting Mm. ways, but it does always take me out of the movie, especially one that's supposed to be so naturalistic. Uh, So I found it really interesting that that wasn't Vilmos's choice. That was kind of, inflicted on them and it's one of the few visual things that i don't think were the best choice i think it does make it look a little dated a little bit like uh 70s right. you know like exploitation did it all the time a lot of kung fu movies in the 70s have the snap zooms uh, i do think it dates the movie a little bit if they weren't there i think it would look even more timeless
0: so I do want to talk about the snow a little bit more because this has like my kind of one and only like major, major criticism. Yes. And it's, the, it's the fake snow. Optically effect they put printed this movie. snow
2: is the worst.
0: It's so bad. It looks so bad in this movie. And I hate it because you don't even need it. Like it's like this is not actually doing anything in the scenes. Like I can see the snow already on the ground. Like I, We like, don't usually, need it for I continuity.
2: It. Yeah. Right. Like weird. it's
0: like. All I can see is like it's fake snow overlaid and it's not building up on the people's jackets or hats. So it just looks really weird. Yeah. Um, but Dave, I'm sure you have something to say about the snow.
1: No, uh, you know, from a photography standpoint, when you're panning and the, uh, <laughs> the shape and direction of the snow is uniform, uh, it is going to distract your brain because that is not how weather actually works. Um, but Jordan bringing up that the snow in general and the winteriness was improvised in the sense that the reason why I have to withhold judgment is that the final gasp, he's being entombed in snow. Yeah. That is one of the most like, that is a shot where I was like, holy fuck, maybe this movie's not as terrible as I thought because that is gold. And now to hear that they didn't even set that up. That they worked with it because it was happening. It's it's funny. Like all of the movies we're reviewing this year, and this might be this, you know, a new Hollywood neo whatever uh, anti-establishment uh, end of codes thing. People experimenting so much. The context of the filmmaking is so much more important maybe than the films themselves. Uh, so. You know,
0: the there look, are a few movies we've talked about where I think the making of is actually more interesting uh, more than the actual movie itself, but
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, from a cinematography standpoint, i, mean, I was quipping to Kyle on my phone in the first uh, opening bar scene. And I was like, I can't see anything. can't they afford a fucking light like. I can't hear what they're saying. You know, it's just kind of funny, and I know that it's intentionally. And it it opens up. It is. I can see how if I'm a ticket uh, buyer and I walk into a theater and I sit through the slog at the beginning, I'll I'll be questioning like, why Why am I sitting here? Because it's not mm-hmm. exciting. It's not that entertaining. I have no idea what's going on. And. Without the backstory and the uh, even understanding of camera principles, you're going to just sit there, you know, not be titillated. <laughs> it's it's kind of like uh, suffocating you a little bit because it is dark and it is muddy and it is kind of yeah flat sometimes. Um, and there's a lot of a trend right now. I don't know if it's trend, but a lot of people always boast about natural light, particularly still photography. I think it's kind of obnoxious, kind of like bokeh. I, I mean, people are really latching onto a concept instead of understanding how it works. But when we watch these old films, because they didn't have, you know, this too much high tech, when it works in this film, it is, it is fascinating to watch because it really draws you in because you do feel like you're in a room or you're outside in a real environment. Uh, and then there are moments where I don't know. Last week we talked about Diamonds Are Forever and uh, he's in a casket and it's perfectly lit and you can see every movement of his beautiful eyebrow, Sean Connery. You know, it's such a jarring flip to go from that plastic filmmaking to something yeah. like this. Uh, right. So it is fascinating uh, if we're going to talk purely about on the technical side to, to learn uh, from both of you how much of it was actually intentional or, or autourness. Um, Gives me better appreciation for what I was watching.
2: (laughs) There's two quick things you brought up that I want to touch on. And one is that this is a big art house movie, like art house movie theater revivals do this. I don't know if it ever did terribly well on video. And I know like among a lot of people, I know this movie doesn't have the best reputation. And I think it's because if you go to the, you know, let's say the Rogers or the blockbuster video store, pop it in. A lot of people might be 10 minutes in like, you know, let's switch it and watch something else where if you've paid your ticket, you're in the theater already. Um, just due to the nature of, like you mentioned, I don't think those opening shots look that great. And when I first started watching this, I'm like, this is from the legendary cinematographer. I don't know how, if he knew how to work with the flash film stock yet you know he learns it as the movie goes on and he's getting his dailies six days later uh to kind of change the way he's working with it Uh, i think that's a huge part of it um and that's i think why this is a movie that it's not you know don't pull your phone out while you're watching it you have to sit there and get absorbed by it i think it's much more effective that way the other thing i wanted to touch on uh i have very mixed thoughts on this and i would love your guys opinion does this movie work better in black and white if they'd Mm. shot it that way. Mm.
0: Maybe? Like, I don't know. That's actually a really great question. I think you could have played around with like the dark, like the shadows and the whites and stuff a little bit more. Um,
1: The only nuance is, I mean, Jordan will know this better than anybody, but you know, how color becomes represented once you desaturate it and whether you can get enough tonality or contrast for you to see anything. So this feels like a movie where the whole thing might just be (laughs) yeah. just because the environment is so dull but if they knew they were going to shoot on black and white and they're actually wearing you know costumes that are going to uh appear differently
2: yeah like you couldn't post convert this movie they would have had to make that decision before you'd be looking at a
1: black screen for the first 10 (laughs) minutes probably (laughs) with like a like a little candlelight um yeah yeah i don't know i personally love black and white in principle, because color information is both hard to manage, but it's also hard to like uh, comprehend sometimes if it's not done very well. You know, like I, I like to joke with Kyle, I watched the Chrome edition of Mad Max Fury Road and I like it better in black and white, but I might be the only one. I, I think there is a great romantic nuance to black and white for me personally, but I can't tell what this would look like because <laughs> all, yeah, all I think are how, like, all I can think about is how brown this film is and uh it'd be interesting to think about
2: i'm super torn because color you know it feels like a documentary so often and that's what i love about it it's like it feels like you're there in that old western town uh so i was really torn about that like i no, i think it has to be color for this to work but you guys previously talked about the last picture show which right. I think feels like a documentary in the same, like visually, uh, like the acting is certainly a little more 70s acty in it. But I think visually they totally made that feel like a documentary from the 50s as well. So that is why I'm flip flopping on this. I'm like, maybe this would be like a totally kick ass black and white movie. Uh, and I haven't made up my mind yet. That's why I wanted to ask you guys.
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good thought experiment. Um, I just want to say, before we get too far away from it, filming in snow must be, like, the most miserable it thing sucks. to do. Because, it, <laughs> like, even watching Warren Beatty being covered up with snow, I'm like, that's awful. Like, I would not be sitting there for, like, two minutes as the snow covers his body. But more than that, there's, like, there, that one scene where, like, uh, I think it's Butler is, like, the evil guy's name. Waist-deep snow, he's trudging. I'm like, well, this must be the first shot they did, because you, you can't, can't do it again. just redo that. Yeah. <laughs> um so it's just like, man, what a miserable thing to have to work around. You
2: could you could bring in a fluffer. <laughs> you kind of. One thing that's kind of cool there too is this was shot, but with old tungsten hot lights. Like there was no option mm. to bring in like you know a fluorescent bank or something like that. You now working in the snow is quite a bit easier, but back in the day too, you have to think everybody. You know, if we get three drops of snow on one of those old. Redhead lights, like those, are gonna pop and burn down an old wooden town that you have to be building yeah, this yeah. movie on. So it was extremely risky, but that's, that's why you never see that in old movies. Is like shooting in like an actual dump of snow.
1: I I wonder if that's why the church was on fire. It's not actually well, in the yeah. script. They you know, <laughs> a, actually blew a a <laughs> just knocked a light over, <laughs> yeah. and they're like, "New new yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, I wanted to bring that up a little bit because I'm assuming like probably within the novel like the church is like even much more of a plot point. I did feel like that was the one plot thing for me that is like, oh, okay, so the church is like super important, I guess, to these people, even though the church hasn't really been referenced up until this point, until it like catches on fire.
1: The pastor is awful too. I didn't understand yeah. why they made him into a horror movie figure. It was, uh, he was so creepy. Cool
0: effect when he blows his hand off though, I have to say. <laughs> Such that. I was, like, a really 70s took me, gore yeah, effect. It took right. me off guard. Yeah. It was like, whoa, I was not expecting that to happen <laughs> in this movie.
2: <laughs> I, I kind of love that because... At the end of the movie, like, there's not a real character arc for McCabe or Mrs. Miller. Like, uh, you know, he beautifully dies in the snow. Nice job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mrs. Miller, you know, is just in an opium den, like dealing with the yeah. things, but what they built is this town. And that's why I love the church build Cause that is the first time you see them as a community accomplishing something. Yeah. So Mrs. Miller might be lost to her addictions and McCabe is dead, but this community is still going to work. Like, I think that's the actual narrative of the film is you see a town get built around this story. And by the end, it's like a functioning community which i think is really cool that's the
0: thing that makes me excited to like return to this movie is because as as i've told dave i am like the easiest audience member because i suspend my disbelief so quickly for movies i'm like yeah okay this is the movie i'm in i'm i'm there is that what i really felt as this movie went along is like this is very much a tone it's trying to establish yes. it wants you to sit in that tone and it's going to slowly like build on top of that so like character motivations and things are like these little snatches of dialogue that they're throwing out but are not being like Hey, this is important. Like, they're not doing the classic Hollywood thing. It's like, we are going to like zoom in and then do a close up of this person's face as they say something. So Mm -hmm. you know that this is super important, what they're saying right now. It's just allowed to be a scene that happens and it becomes important only upon reflection. (laughs) And so that's just a little bit of a different approach. This is also the argument that Dave and I got on a few weeks ago, which is like, this is also like a funded and released by Warner Brothers, which seems like such an alternate universe to me now because I don't think that they would make they would not uh, roll the dice on a movie like this and be like, yeah, director that we barely know, go and make whatever
2: you want. He was already pretty money. prominent.
1: He had a pretty big TV yeah. career at this point, but...
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, and made MASH. As and MASH the TV yeah. show, I think, is is it getting started at this point?
1: Uh, I think it launched yeah. in 72,
0: oh, I yeah. think, is when it starts, yeah.
1: Um. And well, you know, to to answer to you, I usually start movies off by just repeating, no, no, no. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I know. No, I I, I think... um. It's interesting you brought that up, Jordan. I, it's it's like everything in this film. When you bring it up, I'll reflect on it. And I'll say, you're right. The town did grow around and maybe around the two uh, protagonists. And maybe that is the conceptual theme. But where this movie loses me, I think, is that... It does spend a lot of time with Warren Beatty talking to himself and having this mm. pseudo-existential crisis. You know, I think that distracts from what you're talking about because you're right. The, the town is growing, but we don't... Aside from the uh, opening uh, sort of sequences, we're introducing some of these uh, classic trope small town, you know, uh, frontier town people. They kind of disappear from the film. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you've got that... Uh, is that the woman from The Shining? Like, yeah. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. So yeah. she's gets married. Shelly Duvall, Duvall would Duvall. be in a few yeah. of yeah. Duvall, His films. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So she appears, gets married to the uh, cripple. He dies and you're like, that happens. I'm like, why is that even in the movie other than that she's going to become a whore? It's, it's just a little bit all over the place for me uh, for me to latch on to it.
0: By the way, can I just say something? I always feel really bad for Shelly Duvall <laughs> a, because of how she was treated by uh, some high profile directors in her career. But B, like, in this movie, she is introduced as being, like, super ugly. Like, no one's gonna love her. Like, it's like, this is awful for you to be brought into the movie this way.
1: Um, And the only other thing is you know talking about the camera work I don't know. I I think that's why the zoom shots look so weird because he does use that thing like he he points at the gun that's going to disappear. He points at you know this thing that's going to become you know very important and they're always inanimate objects. It's never the face but he falls into that trap a little bit and I I don't know if you can get away with it without doing it because maybe I wouldn't even notice he put the gun down as he went up the ladder but But you just cut to an
2: insert And then it doesn't feel like a movie, you know, you would just go frame up a nice shot of the gun or, you know, the breakfast or something like that. All of those really distract. I I totally agree. And I think it really, it does date the movie a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch on visually as well, that this does so well that I miss so much from movies is the movie does a lot of wide shots showing the camp throughout the entire movie. So when we get to the final gunfight, the geography in it is fantastic. Like, I would put it up with some of, you know, Kubrick's full metal jacket. I think the final sniper shot is another example of an action movie with perfect geography. I think this one does, too. At every point, you know exactly where he is. You know how far away the other gunfighters are. And I miss that so much. And I just find it so much more tense.
0: It's a a lost art. Last year, I... This is gonna be a weird movie in relation to this, but I rewatched Die Hard of all movies, and what Die Hard is actually really good at is it actually does a tracking shot of the entire building yeah. first, and it's like so it shows you exactly you the roof, exactly and the space. Yeah. And so when that moment comes, it's like okay, I know where he is in relation to the bad guys, where these people are, and it doesn't feel confusing. So I don't know why it you thought nice that was a weird reference.
1: More. That is like the essential Christmas movie that we should watch <laughs> right, every the year. Essential so, one. Yep. I don't know. What? It should be a yearly viewing.
0: Six-year-old son loves it. It's great. He will.
1: Um, He's seven now, but he will. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, so the, I guess the other thing I'm really trying to drive at here, we keep mentioning that this is being an art film. And while this wasn't like one of the top grossing movies of the year, it didn't do awful, but it wasn't one of like the top 10 grossing movies of the year. It does seem, as we've been going through the year, that there is a mix of like, we have our bonds. We have our fiddler on the roofs, like these big studio tentpoles. But it is also filled up with like these like low budget personal projects from from directors, and it, that that is what seems like the lost art that is mm-hmm. going on nowadays. Where it's like any of those personal projects would never come close to being in the top ten grossing movies. Doesn't mean they're bad. Doesn't mean that even the top that the the entertainment movies are bad. It's just it's, it's a weird dynamic that we live in now where those ones seem to get pushed further and further into just like if you're a cinephile or a movie lover those are the only people who watch these movies
2: well we have a direct example because good cow or good cow first cow came first out cow. It might have been a that's, good so that's one the sequel <laughs> we have the first one next then, year we
1: get the good one okay. and then better cow um, and then it just falls off from there <laughs>
2: yeah but it was a total A24 art house film release. So, and, yeah. and that is a movie that feels like if you're like, man, I just wish this was a little techni- more technically proficient. That's that movie. Um, and yeah. you know, nobody's seen it uh, to the best of my, I think I'm the I only one. seen it. And so it's great, I'm,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Uh, um, I, uh, Kelly, is it Kelly Reichardt? Is that the mm-hmm. director of that one? Yeah. Yeah. She's
2: great. When we
1: argued about this previously, I just, I feel like that is what the streaming platform is now. And I think comparing what the theater meant for culture in the 70s to what a theater means now is difficult because Mm. the type of people that pay 25 bucks or 15 bucks is a different audience than the people that would pay three bucks to go to a... And those were studio-owned theaters and there's a different distribution system, et cetera. It wasn't Cineplex or famous players or whatever they're uh, called the decisions of what you get to sit down and watch were different. Cause you know, I, I imagine if it's the seventies and you're going to go out on a date, it's, you know, there's three things playing. You choose one of three and, or you fuck off. Like that's it. And yeah.
0: plus I'm smoking in the theater, <laughs> yeah. which is just great for everyone. It's visually stunning. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nobody's <laughs> yeah. even looking
1: at the cinematography. They're just trying to breathe. Um, <laughs> yeah. I feel like I just watched a bunch of shitty movies on Netflix, otherwise known as just Netflix movies. While it doesn't compare, of course, to work like of this nature, I do feel like that's where that arena is, you know, YouTube Mm -hmm. streaming stuff like the world has changed enough with digital media that the experimenting is not done on uh, mainstream film anymore. It's kind of, you know, creative fucking content content. You know, content is taking over this experimental stuff and it's working its way back into
2: film. uh, Now, when I've
0: had a long day on a Friday, I like nothing more than sit back and just enjoy some great content.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think this is an interesting one because I mentioned this is a movie that works in a theater where you can't get away from it. You have to sit and dwell in the mood. I I call these lost in translation movies because Mm -hmm. when that came out in theaters, everyone was like, Oh my god this is like one of the best films we've ever seen like it was a huge thing the second it came out on home video absolutely tanked. like you can see the you know all the audience scores and everything like that and the backlash that happened before the oscars because it's a mood piece you have to sit there and just soak in it you can't be looking at your phone or like pausing it when the pizza shows up and i feel like those are the kind of movies i love that we're really going to miss with streaming because they're not going to get you know if this launched on netflix everyone would watch the first two minutes of it and then click off and go watch desperate housewives or something right yeah, is that I mean, a dated reference? Uh, Probably. Well, they keep remaking
1: point. it, so I don't know. I mean, every show is basically that. If you, <laughs> it's basically that. Opinion, I
0: mean, yeah. you're right. I think that the way people consume movies, television now is fundamentally different. And that's something we've also been mentioning about how different would it be if all of the movies we watched this year we were experiencing in the movie theaters for the first time. I do think there would be fundamental differences on how we reacted to those. Something much more recent. It's kind of like almost like the counterexample to this because it's by no means an art house film. But how I noticed critics in the States, how they reviewed the musical In the Heights, whether they watched it on HBO Max at home or if they actually went to a theater and watched it, there was a completely different way that people responded to that to be like, hey, no, I was like in this movie because of how big it was. It was like, it felt small and like too much at times. When I, I, I thought watched it was home. way
2: too big and I watched <laughs> yeah. it.
0: <at> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well,
1: I mean. Stop that's, cutting. I think. That, <laughs> yeah,
0: that, I agree with that.
1: <laughs> I think that's the other thing uh, we've lost sight in, which is when we were all, I'm assuming we're all around the same age. When we were growing up, what we forget is theaters were tiny, so the big screen, you know, the film screen was still maybe a quarter of what we consider a theater space to mm. be now. I remember when, not even IMAX, like just when everybody started updating to more digital technology, I I can't sit anywhere past the middle anymore because it's suffocating. I I, have, I don't want to move my head when I watch a film. And so like the the visceral experience, now we have Dolby Atmos and the fucking volumes at 11. And um,
0: I prefer my 4DX where mist is thrown in my face. My seat <laughs> rumbles around.
1: Uh, the, it's the
0: only way to watch Citizen Kane, dude.
1: <laughs> when he spits, you get dropped. <laughs> I just feel like um, the idea of, of movies has changed a lot and mm-hmm. how they interact with um people and how people interact well with not them.
0: to get super doom and gloom about it oh i'm about to is why i'm a really really nervous and i even say this as like a disney apologist in some cases but i get really nervous now that that law in the u.s where studios cannot own their own theater change is mm-hmm. now not a thing anymore because it is going to be a Disney or an Amazon that makes it like, this is an experience, right? You're paying now your $40 to come into there and uh, have all these things going. So it's an amusement it's park ride, ride that you're yeah. coming and experiencing and not an actual like, and this really is old man yells at cloud territory now. It's that is the experience you're coming in for, not to sit down and like watch something that you have to grapple with question things about and actually talk through after it's done
2: when i had an idea that netflix was going to be a kind of a savior of that because it's tough to remember at this point but they were actually like trying to become a prestige film studio you know like right. they brought out uh, roma and you know right. I, the last example i think they just lost so much money on the irishman they're never going to do it again
0: yeah. right
2: but uh they're not that any like when was the last time you saw something that was like an attempt at greatness produced by like they've bought great movies, but they haven't produced a great movie in God knows how long. Right, um, It's just not a worthwhile business venture for them. So, yeah, you're going to wind up with the Disney-owned theaters. And the last savior of, I think, really great filmmaking is HBO right now. But they're, you know, all owned now as well um, with the Warner merger. So, uh, we're just going to get DC movies instead. So, I don't know. I, I don't want right. to be doom and gloom either. It's just the things that I loved are going away and it makes me sad
1: (laughs) (laughs) feed it all to the algorithm baby
2: you know you brought up kyle at the beginning
1: about the movement the counter movement and the parody Yeah, yeah yeah but then you know what happens after that is the reboot And I wonder, like you're talking about, I I agree with you, Uh, the merger of uh, blockbusters, so-called blockbusters and art films in the 80s becomes blockbusters only. And then there was sort of this counter movement we saw in the 90s and the 2000s where some of these art house films are becoming more prominent. And now it's just a mess. uh, Yeah, we're going to get the Minority Report thing where you got to sit in a Disney gel suit so that you can feel fucking whatever the beast rub his fur on you. <laughs> but um, there will be a push. I, I'll well, be the well, optimist
0: too. Bob Iger just waves money that you gave to him. It's like, <laughs> uh, yes, thank you.
1: <laughs> globe Cinema will somehow, you know, start showing indie films. You know, th- there'll be something because well, people see, that's, can't that's get the, away from that's books. That's the right?
0: hard thing, right? It's like for those independent theaters in Calgary here, there's like the Globe and um, the Plaza. I,
2: I, yeah, I think the Plaza is done, so. done. Oh, They're is it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we
0: have the Globe then. We have the one Globe. One bastion. Marginal,
1: marginally, yeah.
0: But they again can definitely get access to uh, newer films to bring in. But let's say that they wanted to do—I'm trying to think of—well, let's just say this: uh, they want to do a, a retrospective of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. AOL might say, "No, I want them to subscribe to HBO Max. We, yeah. We're not going to let you do this." Disney already does this, so if you want to show an old Disney movie, you're not getting it. They're not going to allow you now that they you own Fox. You can't even get
2: Fox anymore. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, so if you want to do more alien. A,
0: exactly so if you want to do a sound of music a, 60, a 70th anniversary you're not getting it or you're because <laughs> they're not going to give it to you paying, yeah. paying,
1: paying, paying, paying. proper pain yeah I so, don't know anyways but maybe that's, that's the future the- of movies and now oh. I'm sad <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we just won't look back anymore we'll talk about how always future forward. indie always films moving forward. Yeah, future indie films will come first out first cow is in the past it's second cow now we're, <laughs> we're the second cow <laughs> um, well you know what's interesting I mean And I think this is to all of your points about how this film is made is every plot point, uh, not to upset you, is such a subversion. So we get the cowboy showing up at the whorehouse and you're like, oh, maybe this is the killer. And then we've got that little boy who's also, who's apparently like a, gunslinger and he ends up, you know, shooting the guy. Like it's every moment where you think something is supposed to go. Oh, the bridge go.
2: scene is great. That's my last bullet point. I love that scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's okay, a- carry on.
1: <laughs> so it's, uh, it's rubbing tropes in your face, which is why by the end, I'm really into it, whether I like mm-hmm. it or not, because every time there's something that you recognize out of a classic Western, they'll just like snap their finger and be like, what the fuck? What just happened? Like, that guy shouldn't have died. He's not a bad guy, you know? And then your brain's got to process it. Right. Um, and then that kid dies first. You know, it's right. you know, it's it's fascinating. You think he might be the final uh, thing because he's such a proficient gunslinger. He dies first, uh, although he does he does get yeah. his shots off. So I, I may think
0: I think that's ultimately why I respect this movie so much and why I like it so much is that you get those tender moments with him and Julie Christie where you don't even realize they had started a relationship even though he's paying her to sleep with her still but he wants it to be more than that and those are kind of said in like these offhand comments but we get to that final scene it is such a difference where it is the the townspeople who are all out in the square trying to get this fire done and it's him skulking around the windows and trying not to get shot and stuff so it is that subversion of what it usually is in those it's like
2: guerrilla warfare as opposed to a gunfight like it feels like a you know, a war movie from maybe. Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. Right. I'm sure yeah. that's how it that, actually was. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. And I'm sure that that's why I was so shocked. Like, oh, they actually shot Warren Beatty and like, he like, he gets shot in the leg and like, oh, I wasn't expecting him to actually get shot so quickly. Well, I that usually happens at the very end.
1: Who expected him to die in that way? You know, yeah. after winning quote unquote. Um, and the only other thing is uh, racism. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, but, they actually had real Asians in it this time. Yeah. Though. Uh, so that's a
1: plus. I thought it was interesting. And this is maybe realistic, but uh, it's not too virulent, but very forward comments about Asian people. Mm-hmm. But then you get a nice, uh, you know, black couple that just get to. Yeah be part of the Exist. town. So it was, it's kind of, like, maybe that's also a subversion. There's a, there's a fascinating choice there to have, yeah, very well to do black couple come to help s- he's a barber and they're not harassed, made fun of. No. They're right. part they're of part all of the, the town. Th- yeah. So it's not, it's subtle, but uh, it, it definitely stuck out for me because they mm-hmm. were talking about paying an Asian woman to see what shape her vagina was. So, right. you know, good yeah. for them. Yeah. And
0: that you can just uh, give them, you know, dynamite to go and drop and you just lose a few of them. It's fine. I, I think a, but lot that of the, scene a lot of people is,
1: forget about that. But anyways, yeah, go ahead, John.
2: Well, I was just going to say that scene is used because you have no context for these bad people from the big company. That's the scene that's used to show you that these people are monsters, which is really interesting for 1971. Uh, one mm. other reason I think that this movie hasn't been as dated as a lot of other Westerns is there's no indigenous people in it. So it can't right. feel super dated in that regard uh, as well
0: i think i'm just not looking in the right spots but i kind of want to see that as a, an evolution or someone can point me to a movie that does this is seeing like let's see a western but from the native american point of view i think that that would just be a really eye-opening thing as they encroach onto their own land and stuff like that
1: we're done here
0: Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up, so we should answer the questions we always answer, which is, does this film hold up, and is it still culturally relevant? Uh, Jordan, what are your answers?
2: I'm a yes and yes.
0: Yes and yes. Uh, Dave?
1: I don't know. You know what? It's a 1971 thing. I think yes and yes if you're a cinephile and willing to talk about the history of this film. As uh, sit-down viewers we talked about particularly in the streaming world, nobody will watch this movie. Nobody will. Like if you don't understand that what it's supposed to do, that first uh, opening sequence is going to turn off the average viewer in a heartbeat. So I'm I'm of both minds. I actually uh, have a greater appreciation of this film after our conversation than I did last uh, night, an hour ago, as we sat on the couch. Um, turning the film off. Interestingly
0: enough, I'm going to split the vote here, weirdly enough. So I am a yes in that I do think it holds up. I had a great time watching this movie. You do have to work at it. You do have to actually watch the movie and not be spending time like looking at the phone and going back and forth. Cultural relevance is the one that I always struggle with in these cases. It's like that's the one I have to kind of say no. I don't think it's really mentioned as much anymore. I, I would suggest anyone who is either a, a fan of Westerns or you know, fan of Warren Beatty, or just wants to see like great filmmaking and great meditation on a dump bunch of stuff, yeah, check it out. I think you're gonna have a lot of great things to to look at and and view and contend with. I will say, as far as this goes, it is now part of the Criterion Collection. Uh, it is recognized by the American Film Institute as the eighth greatest Western of all time. That Where was Shrek missing. in that list? <laughs> <laughs> Shrek was 45th, weirdly enough. Yeah. Um, in 2010, it was selected for preservation by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So at least again, with the cinephiles, it is being something that is still fondly remembered.
1: Is uh, I don't remember. I looked at that list too, but... Is there, there's the, uh, Sergio Leone movies didn't make the top 10, right?
0: Well, he's not American. That's the American Film Institute, Dave. Uh,
1: Clint, though. It's Clint. You got to get sorry. a little, little
0: angle. I don't make the rules. Americans are America first. They'll be uh, remade. Don't worry. And those will that's definitely right. rank. You
2: know?
0: <laughs> I always make fun because every Disney film now has to be basically only one word <laughs> and so when even when they remake things it has to be like this one word so yeah the, like the good the bad and the ugly would just be called like good bugly or something like uh, that.
1: <laughs> they're making yeah. another uh, they're making a sequel to uh, to what what's the guy richie one Aladdin they're, he's oh, making he's making another one like Yikes. Uh, I know they have all the money but you know you could use the money to make a good movie Right?
0: Why do that when people went and gave Aladdin two billion dollars? Is that so like, also a billion
1: dollar club film? Yeah, that was such that was piece the
0: year that shit. that was literally the year that Disney had six movies cross a billion dollars. Oh my god! So, of course, they're going to make another one.
1: So, culturally relevant?
0: <laughs> yeah, culturally relevant, man.
1: People don't care. People don't care anymore.
0: It is time for Critics' Choice. So, we're going to look at, of course, Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael, both of which loved this movie like unabashedly loved this movie in fact I was talking about uh um, I don't remember if I was mentioning it in this episode or not but watching Dick Cavett Pauline kale comes on and defends this movie and oh, she's very hard. oh very she's hard like
1: blushing that's yeah, great <laughs>
0: <laughs> but this is what Ebert had to say there is no musical soundtrack apart from the Cohen songs. McCabe is tracked through the town by three hired killers, including the young gunslinger. The snow falls so heavily, blowing at a slant, it is like unheard music. In some movies, the hero gets killed and then there is a shot of his woman looking sad. Here we see Mrs. Miller looking sad even before McCabe meets his fate. She is in the opium den down in the Chinatown end of Presbyterian Church. Her attention is focused on pretty colors and surfaces. This time and place are so dead for her that she simply shuts down her mind. Study the title. McCabe ampersand Mrs. Miller not and as in a couple but ampersand as in a corporation it is a Hmm. business arrangement everything is business with her what sorrows she knew before she arrived in Presbyterian church are behind her now everything else is behind her now too the opium promises poor McCabe he had poetry in him too bad he rode into a town where nobody knew what poetry was but one and she already lost to it So that's what he wrote about this movie. He's just the best. (laughs) I will say that this was not actually at the time. He wrote this uh, a few years later. This is a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I see you making a face though, Dave. What do you want to say?
1: I don't know. I I don't like the idea of uh, connecting that romantically with Warren Beatty's character. I think there shows a little bit of, you know, I don't know. It's just caught me a little off guard. Ebert's... uh,
0: People don't love each other, that is Dave's.
1: No, he, I just, I thought he came out like uh, an asshole the whole time.
0: I think he's definitely an asshole, I just think that he is way above his um, abilities, right? Like he's shown to be like, I can get away with so much, but then when someone calls my bluff, I, I'm not able to do anything. Um, which, which is just, fascinating. is that
1: poetry? Alright, let's keep it going.
0: Uh, well, I think he's referencing poetry for her, not for him particularly. This is what Pauline Kael wrote. This is her last paragraph in in her review, which I would recommend anyone read. It's very long. (laughs) McCabe and Mrs. Miller seems so strange because despite a great deal of noise about the art of film, we are unaccustomed to an intuitive, quesotic, essentially impractical approach to movie making and to an exploratory approach to a subject, particularly when the subject is the American past. Improvising as the most gifted Europeans do has been the dream of many American directors, but few have been able to beat the economics of it. In the past few years, there have been breakthroughs, but only on, sen- on sensational current subjects. Can an American director get by with a movie as personal as this? Personal, not as in personal statement, but in the, di- but in the sense of giving form to his own feelings, some not quite defined, but just barely suggested? A movie like this isn't made by winging it. To improvise in a period setting takes phenomenal discipline, but McCabe and Mrs. Miller doesn't look disciplined, as movies that lay everything out for the audience do. Will a large enough American public accept American movies that are delicate and are understated and searching? Movies that don't resolve all the feelings they touch, that don't aim at leaving us satisfied the way a three-ring circus satisfies? Or do we accept such movies only from abroad, and then only a small group of us, enough to make a foreign film a hit, but not enough to make an American film which costs more a hit? A modest picture like Claire's Knee would probably have been a financial disaster if it had been made in this country, because it might have cost more than five times as much, and an audience for it is relatively small. Nobody knows whether this is changing, whether we're ready to let American movie makers grow up to become artists, or whether we're doomed to more of those hard-hitting, ruthlessly honest American movies that are themselves illustrations of the crudeness they attack. The question is always asked. Why aren't there American Bergmans and Fellinis? Here is an American artist who has made a beautiful film. The question now is, will enough people buy tickets? And the answer was
2: no. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of a film critic as a champion, and we don't mm-hmm. see that as much as we used to. Um, you know, I agree. That- Like uh, and I think that's a big part of why I respect Ebert so much as well. Is you have things like hoop dreams and you know even do the right thing. I think he was really responsible for a lot of those getting as culturally important as they you know were able to. Mm -hmm.
1: Listening to her review and maybe Jordan, you know more about this having worked in the film industry. Like how how much access do some of the higher end critics get before they watch a film? Because this sounds like she already knew. How this movie All was made. the backstory.
2: Made. Well, I know, like it's a very different time now, because I think like Ebert famously was writing about uh, Bertolucci's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, cause he was on set for two weeks, um, mm-hmm. just watching how Bertolucci worked and stuff. So this could very well be a situation like she was the biggest film critic in the world at the time. She could have zipped out to a Vancouver set for a day or two and seen you know, oh, it started snowing, I guess, grab a camera. We're going to go film in the snow, that kind of thing. Cause she does mention the improvisational aspect of it so much. That seems to be the big takeaway for her. And yeah, she would, yeah. It, it might be in the press release that's very possible, but maybe she she had more firsthand knowledge of that.
0: Well, I also think that both her and critics at the time were very involved with the business of film mm. uh, a lot too. I can't tell you how many times in like reviews from the '70s they bring up the budget of a movie, I it's like I don't really care what the budget is, but they're so obsessed with it. Can you believe this movie was like budgeted at nine million dollars? There's what a waste of money with this movie for nine million. It's like well. I don't really care at the end of the day. I really care about if it works or not.
1: I mean, I will say as a quip, I do not read critics Critics today. I mean, I, I find I know, them- because
0: you think all of them are off.
1: Well, I, they're not only negative, but they are, it's the American, or whatever you call it, our Western. current culture's thing about who can yell the loudest, who can be the most verbose, who can stand out the, to show that they're smarter than everybody else. But there aren't, even when Pauline Kale is critical, she does it in such a, biting yeah. and deep way where she's thinking about the film itself and not just trying to yell louder than everybody else tweet in all caps with the correct right. hashtags you know so um it, it's why when you're reading it, i just started thinking yeah well and journey brought up they're more involved in the process and the industry of this and there's a lot less people so mm-hmm. even if she couldn't fly out she probably had people calling her like do you have any this idea as a lunatic yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wild i mean i think this is like i i Again, don't remember if this was before we started recording or not. I, I don't like calling us film critics at all, but the thing that drives me nuts. Film criticism is turned into, let's explain the plot, and uh. if something doesn't make sense, then that means the movie is bad. It's like, what the, the worst way to devolve a, a, a conversation about a movie, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would say um, I still have my guy, uh, Matt Zoller Seitz, I think is one of the great, you know, he really follows in the footsteps of Kalen and Ebert. And I love how he'll look at a lot of movies and not even mention the plot, just like the creative decisions that they made and what it does emotionally. And I kind of love that. But I mean, yeah, I can mention exactly one current film critic that I will religiously read everything that they write now. And it's it's a sad state of affairs.
0: Really what I need is a YouTube video called McCabe and Mrs. Miller Ending Explained because I can't make <laughs> up my own decision.
1: Actually, now we watched the trailer and on my algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> is that what I'll came up? It. No. Oh, That's yeah. so funny. <laughs> So, I uh, actually, you know, it just I don't know if we should keep this in the cut, but we've been uh, trying to make YouTube content. So we watch all this stuff. My YouTube, if we watch the trailer for Million Dollar Duck, it will come out with all these oh, yeah. expository. Like it's people will, it's wild. People will talk about, well, if you didn't get this, or you know, we talk about Easter eggs and you know, I watched Loki <laughs> and they're like, here's 17 things you didn't see in this frame. Like I don't fucking care because I just watched <laughs> it. Like it's I not just that important. It. It's fine. But,
0: That's modern criticism for you. Okay. Well, I'm very excited and interested to know what your rating is actually going to be for this eventually, Dave. So that's what Dave, Jordan, and myself thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave at vsthemachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxed page. That's letterboxd.com slash And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts so i always hate to do this with our guests um you although rev- datings, I, I revel in it yeah. uh jordan i do want to know what you would rate this movie out of five but your rating doesn't matter
2: yeah i uh, i went back and forth on this a lot i'm i'm gonna say a four out of five like there are still oh, nice. some creative decisions that i do struggle with there's some dead zones in it But, I mean, the fact that I can't 100% put my finger on what I love about this movie so much, but that I've gone back to it a few times does, I think, speak volumes. Have
0: you seen another 1971 movie called Sunday Bloody Sunday by any chance?
2: I have not, no. Okay.
0: I feel it very similar to this. Um, it has nothing to do with a Western or anything. like. It's very modern yeah, for, for 1971. But it is also a movie that I keep thinking about and I want to revisit again. <laughs> and I feel like this is going to be the same thing for this one. It's like, I really need to watch that movie again because there's something at it that I need to work out well uh, i can say
2: dave, when we're working on our youtube show because chris and i started our show talking about movies basically i mm-hmm. bring this movie up you know at least every few shoots or something like that <laughs> like we're we're right. grab the zoom lens we're gonna mccabe this thing you know <laughs> uh, so it, d- it has stuck in there
0: let's, let's bury chris and snow you know mccabe <laughs> it uh dave what are you are gonna what are you gonna rate this movie
2: i don't know i i
1: have two minds and the two minds are this i have a rating for having just one this is like every 71 film actually the uh, experiential one as i get Mm -hmm. up off the couch and then the post-conversation one when we can get into so much detail and backstory and unlike the critics of that time i did not have access or did not look for access for any of the context so i mean after our talk uh, I would also go up to a four, but watching it, it was like a two. So I'm going to go in the middle and stay with a three, because even though the end it's ramped still up- still pretty
2: high for you in yeah, 71. I think yeah, yeah. so,
1: yeah. I, it ramped up, and I really enjoyed the ending, but that first that first half was uh, was a tough grind for me. So it, it's hard, like you brought up, Jordan, it's hard to kind of rate it as a, as a movie experience versus a film. I, I know that's a weird semantic thing to do, but- all of the films i need to go back to some of these 71 films now that we're talking about Mm -hmm. this era so much because
0: i think what we really need to do is in our final episode of this season whenever this machine allows us to finish talking about 1971 as i think each of us can go to our previous ratings and uh, raise one and lower one. Just one? <laughs> yeah, just one. All right. And then we'll we'll figure it out. Um, I'm kind of aligned with Jordan. I'm giving this a four as well. I I liked a lot of the stuff that was in this movie, but there are like those few technical things that like really pull me out, like the fake s- snow scenes that are going on in there. There's also the one thing that's that I keep coming back to, which is like that you'd like to say dave's like oh i can tell that a a male directed this movie which is like just like the prostitutes splashing water on each other for kind of no reason for like 45 seconds like, do we really need this
2: scene in here i know we're at the end but they actually froze the actors so he's like well we can just go Uh, shoot a hot tub scene right now and that was their legitimate reaction because they'd been freezing in the snow for four hours Sneaky. Uh, sneaky So really, he was Creepy. being really
0: nice to the to the prostitutes. No, I,
2: I've it. never in anything I've heard about Altman uh, gotten the impression that he's being nice to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: no that's I, right.
1: I read a little bit of the Popeye fiasco, so yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> he doesn't. Seem that's like also
0: that. another movie that's great <laughs> to talk about the making of. This <laughs> is wild. Okay, well, because of that, that then averages up to three point five, and wildly, that does not actually tie with any of the Ooh. movies that we've talked about. So it is going to enter our list at the number six position well we should see what we're going to be talking about next week dave i'm just going to push this button here oh we are going to be watching the movie wild rovers which oh i might be pulling this out of my butt but i think that's a blake edwards movie so that's going to be a comedy
1: Uh, can people hear me shrug because the pink
0: panther movies the guy who directed the pink Panther. oh i just mean it
1: well yeah that and i've never heard of this film so i'm sure No, i've not heard of this movie either so
0: I'm sure it seems like we're going through a period of Western films. I'm sure it's only a matter of time before we talk about John Wayne. Mm. So we can we can be excited about that, I suppose. Uh, have you heard about Wild Rovers at All Jordan? I have no idea what that okay. is. So I hope great. you enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, excellent, perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us here today. This has been great. If people wanted to follow you, see what you're up to online, what is the easiest way to
2: do so? Yeah, on uh, I'm th- at that Jordan Drake on Twitter and Instagram, and then of course check out DP Review TV. That's our biweekly YouTube show that we've been doing for a while now. Camera reviews, tests, advice, all kinds of fun stuff.
0: Nice. Perfect. Jordan, how do you
2: think you would survive in the old West? Dead in 15, four. No, uh, exposure takes a while. So like two (laughs) hours.
1: Feed it all to the algorithm, baby.